Welcome to the AI Asia Pacific Institute podcast. The rise of AI presents important legal and ethical challenges for society. In this podcast, we invite leaders from different industries and creators of new AI to debate the big questions. This is the AI Asia Pacific Institute podcast. All right. Hello, everybody. This is Luis Gonzalez, director of the Institute. Uh, today, I'm running the podcast and I've invited a friend and a collaborator from the past. Uh, his name is David Berend. He is a PhD candidate out of N Nanyang Technological University here in Singapore. David is a, one of the leaders of AI security and standardization we have in Asia. His team have, are about to publish uh, first version in the world of uh, uh, standards in the next two months. Further, he's developed research tools for AI quality assurance uh, as part of his PhD. And this is actually how we, we get to know each other, collaborating in a social media security and, and, and ethics conversation. He is now commercializing that spin-off from NTU into a startup. And on top of that, he is also part of the German Standards Commission in ISO, having worked in security uh, in the past with them and is integrating the Singapore standards achievements into global context. So David, I'm really happy to welcome you to the podcast and thanks for your time. Yeah, hi Luis, it's a pleasure to be here. Very good. So David, you have a very interesting background. I remember the first time we had a good exchange about the, the risks of social media. We, we got really involved into where, you know, the impact to society of, of AI is found. And your experiences in, in advisory and defense and control prior to your doctorate work. So you're not necessarily an academic by training. You're an academic by choice. Like you were in, in the real world, you decided to go and investigate, which to me is very, very interesting. Could you take us through how you got to Singapore and your work on standards? Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, as you correctly pointed out, yeah, I started in consulting where I was able to learn a lot about leadership and communication. This was done in a, in a mostly defense project where we tried to have a defense inventory platform for Germany. And that helped a lot to understand stakeholder interests and yeah, to understand risk management as well. So many leadership, many management topics were involved. And at some point, I was thinking to myself, I was 22, 23, so yeah, still more expertise to get and still more, more things to know. And therefore, I looked for options. And one of the things that excited me a lot was AI, as it is a very, yeah, uh, emerging field, very fast growth, and I think can benefit humanity a lot. So therefore, I looked at the options. Singapore was great because it has this nice fit of very fast validation, right? So it's small, you can try out things quickly, you can work with governments, you can work with industries, so you can really validate your research. And therefore, it provides a really great ground. And at the same time, I could uh, skip the masters as I could directly jump from bachelor to PhD, which is not possible in Europe. So therefore, Choosing Singapore was a very advantageous choice. So 
starting the PhD, the primary focus was on AI testing and actually still is. So now as I've started with quality assurance, AI testing, the research led to various opportunities. Like if you can assure quality, you can somehow certify some quality. And therefore, if you can certify some quality, you, can, you need the standard, of course, first, so you have something to certify in the first place. So therefore, this organically led to the standard work. And at the same time, as the way through which we met, having the opportunity to commercialize some of that quality assurance work was also very exciting as it shows now the actual benefit it can provide. So yeah, now focusing on standards, quality assurance as a service, and yeah, looking forward how these two streams develop. Very interesting, and, and I found very, um, very uh, adequate the, the 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 paradigm that your team and you are are looking into thinking of security because in in the industry normally we see security as something you do the least possible off, right? So enough to get past the regulator, which means you're always behind the latest happening in the world because the regulator is not necessarily caught on with the latest that's happening in the world. And on top of that, you don't need to be the most secure. You just need to be more secure than your neighbor. Meaning as long as someone else is easier to hack than you are, then, then it's almost like a risk management game. But this worried me. And, and when you and I talked about social media, it worried me a lot because a lot of damage can be done while still being what's deemed a standard of safety today. And with the AI, the, the increased amount of damage that can be done is significant, right? So... For me, I, I think this topic is, is very, very important to think differently about. And I want to chat with you about adversarial attacks, because as, as an expert in this field, uh, I love to get our audience to listen a little bit more why that matter, right? So, so maybe as, as a practitioner of learning algorithms, tell me, what do we need to be aware of with adversarial attacks or other forms of AI-enabled attacks? Right, right. So let me maybe give a little bit of background first. So initially, I talked... I, talked about the quality assurance issue. And quality assurance for AI means that some data is used to train the system and thereby reflects the logic the system now has. So if we test it afterward, we want to use similar data to ensure that the system actually can do its job once we deploy it. So this means that when we have, uh, let's say, skin cancer diagnosis system, right? You have a computer vision task where a scan is made from your skin and you now want to understand, does that person have skin cancer? So there are different signs. The AI system is learning on how to predict whether or not a certain cancer wound is detected and then tries to understand what kind of stage it is in, for example. So, we want to ensure if we test it that all kinds of wounds, all kinds of types are covered, all kinds of features the AI system can learn are represented in our data so that it functions in the best way. However, there are some problems that can arise which have led to significant uh, yeah, public exposure recently where minority groups were, for example, not part of that data or certain ethnicities were not involved in the data, as most data was only collected in certain neighborhoods. 
So suddenly the accuracy of these systems for white-skinned people was really high. But once black-skinned people were involved, the accuracy dropped significantly, showing a real issue here where systems we develop only work for one ethnicity, but not for the other. And similar patterns we can observe in human resources with male and female, so gender issues, or when we go into <clears throat> social media, of course, how content is recommended, how content is filtered, it is different depending on who's using the system. So one primary motivation is to make sure that the system behaves equally or similarly for each kinds of sensitive features like gender, age, or ethnicity. Now, the, the second thing we take a big look in the quality assurance and now also the standardization is adversarial threats. So these are the kinds of things where attackers try to exploit the weakness of an AI system. And these weaknesses we can see a lot, right? Where we have Tesla cars running into emergency vehicles because they haven't tested yet the emergency vehicles in the training data. Right, so these are occurrences of data that really rarely seen and then an accident occurs. So understanding this behavior of the AI system, an attacker can craft the input in the necessary way to fool it in the first place. Whereas the emergency vehicle is a natural error, we can exploit this error by crafting a similar input and thereby causing the accident in a controlled attacking manner. And that's something we need to prevent. If we go into disease diagnosis, that's substantial, changing the diagnosis of a person having cancer or not, diabetes or not, similar in autonomous driving, similar in defense or public security or finance. Somebody wants to get a credit and changes the features nicely. So these are all kinds of threats we suddenly are now exposed to and only minimal people are aware. So therefore, doing the standards on these kinds of adversarial attacks or other threats like poisoning attack or inference attack help us to raise the awareness and therefore get a higher quality AI system deployed eventually. I think this is particularly ex exciting and unnerving in my view because for, for those of you that, that uh, follow the power industry, my first interaction with adversarial attacks was in 2018 where I realized that acoustic signals that we use to detect, in this case, tube leaks in a boiler or rotary equipment health in a generator, can be gamed. And this is the thing, we were developing models at GE that would do uh, criticality-based maintenance predictions on these acoustic signals. So this means I could broadcast acoustic signals to the models that the signals are, are that, that the receptors were taking and pretty much run to failure a generator or a power turbine. For those of you in the power industry, this is, this is scary stuff because it's really difficult to know where the signals are coming from. And you just take that every single acoustic signal coming out of the turbine is a, is a beneficiary one, not an adversarial one. The whole idea of adversarial signals was something that I got woken up and, and it's more prevalent than we believe and more, more risky than we understand. So mm -hmm. I, I think this is, this is a very important topic for any industry that, that has critical outcome decisions yeah. to, to consider, right? Not just Envision. I know there's examples out there with 
gamifying the model to recognize my face as Angelina Jolie has some glasses on, for example. But mm -hmm. it's not only with vision signals, it could be with numbers, it could be with any kind of other signals like acoustics, for example. This right. is very, uh, it's, it's very important and very little is talked about in this space. Now, there, there has been frameworks like, like feet in, in principle, right? Fairness, ethics, accountability, and transparency. And there's a few frameworks around responsible AI that have aimed at educating on the, on the need to think of the problem according to governance, right? Um, and, and I think to a, to a degree, they're, they're, they're unfortunately very open to interpretation, right? So they're good guidance, but at some point they, they, they're very difficult to, to, to get something practical coming out of it. So how would you approach the responsibility AI deployment? Mm -hmm. So when it comes to feet, so this is the fairness, explainability, accountability, and transparency. These are very nice words that are used frequently in various uh, frameworks. So if we go to ISO or if we go to NIST, more principles even come up. So now then there's <clears throat> ethnicity or, or, sorry, ethics or there's robustness, security. So all these new words come up and a lot of debate is happening on how we should name them, how we should term these principles. But the validation aspect, I think, is commonly overlooked here. But maybe we can touch on that a little more later. For now, I think if we take a look at this responsible AI development, first of all, I think it's great. Because the, the, key, the key thing what we observe in the last years is everybody talks about AI, but only a few are actually using it as core business value function, mm -hmm. right? So there are many prototypes that are being developed, many kind of chatbots released or early stage products presented to the public to show now we are an AI-driven company. But the real value that can be unlocked, it's, it's still quite locked up. And showing responsible AI ways to develop systems helps decision makers understand the necessary concepts they need to employ in their general enterprise architecture, in their general AI design pro processes, and thereby see the bigger picture of which governance components the enterprise should adopt first so it can really unleash the full potential AI can have for the business. So in general, this responsible AI framework, standards, guides, or even acts, as we can now see from the European Commission, help to guide upper management now to raise the awareness in proper deployment. I think as mentioned at the beginning, the way responsible AI right now is standardized, it's very experimental, of course, because we don't know how these standards will actually impact industry once they are tried out. So this validation aspect is a real crucial thing where we need to understand how we should guide the development of AI systems. So therefore, here in Singapore, the standard work we are doing from the very beginning, they told us, okay, let's plug into the general 
standard ecosystem of responsible AI, look at the principles that are at hand, and then choose the one where we plug in, which in our case is security and privacy, more particularly the threats against them. And then see <clears throat> what kind of industries are impacted, what kind of applications could be exploited easily. Because it's not relevant for everyone. I don't care if a Netflix recommendation is attacked and one of my 100 recommendations is now a love movie, even I want a thriller. However, it changes the narrative if it's about a credit, or if it's about diagnosis, etc. So understanding who is impacted and who can benefit from it is also very good. And then the last aspect is to yeah, then engage with these people actually and see what would be, what would happen if I would now attack you as with such a threat? And how can we mitigate that? provide the necessary guidance, not only for the decision makers, but also for the developers too. Yeah, and I think the standards is the right approach because one of the, the challenges that we've had in the industry in the past is that there is, there's gotta be a non-interpretable or not open to interpretation level of safety for key processes. In, in the case in the power industry, we don't, we don't debate whether nuclear safety it's open to debate based on whether it's a Chinese, German, Canadian, or, or, or other standard. The reality is that there's general standards practices of keeping nuclear safe, nuclear energy safe that we all subscribe to. That's why there's a, there's a global you know, nuclear uh, agency. At the same token, I think standards are, have to be much more aligned to the domain, like you say, you know, depending on where, where you're working, there's gotta be a, a way to keep people safe with social media versus with healthcare practices. So it, it is definitely, uh, to me, it, it seems like the natural way to progress. And to be fair, not to have to wait for regulation because the regulator should play above the standard, but, but below the operations. That means mm -hmm. there's gotta be a way to, to interpret what is needed for that industry without having to get legislators getting involved, right? And, mm -hmm. and to be fair, safety practices should anticipate safety legal standards. So in, in my view, this is perhaps the best approach I've seen for principles like feet, for example. So if that's the case, you know, if we focus with standards, uh, what, what would be in your way, uh, or in, your, in the way to explain it, the best, the best way for a practitioner of ML to adopt some of these standards? How, how should they be looking at it? How should they be getting involved and informed? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like what you shared regarding common, a, a certain consensus among countries. So with you, when you mentioned the nuclear energy example, I think this is something also we need to respect a lot in the standardization making, in especially the regulation making. Because if I am a company and I want to be certified in country A, and I now expand to country B, then optimally I can bring my certification of country A and let it be accepted in country. And this is really essential for innovation, for expansion, for growth, as it can be a devastating damper and hinder decision-making makers to expand on this AI for, let's say, safety-critical applications. So as a developer who wants to contribute, I think it's important to highlight the opportunities certain developing paradigms can help in the standardization making. Because 
many people are involved in the standardization efforts, but not many have the necessary technical foundations to frame the right approach properly. So instead, processes are usually made, which help to frame some governance com concepts where you can walk through, yes, I've checked my input, yes, I've checked my data, yes, I've checked my model. But what techniques in particular? It's mostly an open question and in some way it should be, as it's, un it's very hard to capture the best practice as it's evolving so quickly. But demonstrating ways to follow these processes, I think is essential. So as developers, similarly at this current point we are at, having this collaboration among them, having the collaboration among how we fulfill the safety critical requirements is important. So in, in our standardization, what we've developed are assessment criteria. So we try to find metrics that are for now timeless. So as the defenses against the threats are currently evolving, same the attacks, etc. Like race, who's, who's faster? What should be constant is the metric on how good my defense is versus the attacks that are coming in. So thereby me as a developer have a criteria to measure how good whatever I built is against what exists out there. And therefore I can understand what my impact of my development was in this aspect. So now one big goal for us is to translate this approach, not only for security, but also to fairness, also to robustness, so that these other principles have a similar timeless approach, so that defenses or other methods that are now developed for these principles can be measured, guided, and later even used for certification as thresholds. So if you meet this threshold, as you, as you with your application, are considered a certain risk level, the threshold is defined, and if you can meet it, then you pass a certain certification regime. This is, of course, nationality specific and then can be adopted by others, but it enables it in this way. So therefore, developers have the necessary tools to integrate themselves in the developments. And I, I think this is really important because so far, when we think of machine learning operations, there's various interpretations of a good practices, to be very frank, uh, inconsistency a lot in, across industries. And some of that standardization early uh, was driven by the providers of the platform, the, you know, the data robots, the data IQs, so forth and so forth, providing some glimpse of you know, better ways to do MLOs. But I like the approach of, from a certification standpoint and a standard standpoint, because it allows for that interoperability, right? It allows for us to say across the board, you know, oil and gas should be doing it this way, healthcare should be doing it this way, and it shouldn't be dependent. It should be agnostic of vendors, should be agnostic of legislation to a degree, uh, even though it's related, but not not driven by, right? And it also allows for it to to be improved. That's that's a great thing with standards. Is if we if we need to improve on something with every year, then we can always generate a new standard, a new ISO iteration, right? And then here we are. Now we have a better understanding how to do this safely or, or responsibly. Uh, and, and that interpretability, I, I think, is something that should, like you mentioned in the past, should be driven across geographies, should be agnostic from 
from national agendas, right? And, and it should really transcend the geographies where they're defined or where they're, they're built. Because like you said, you know, if you're extending your company to different operations across, in this case, as mentioned, Asia, right? You want that Japanese standard to eventually become somewhat of a, you know, a standard that we can all adopt and, and perhaps enhance based on what we need in Southeast Asia or other parts of Asia. So with that said, then, what, what's, can you talk a bit more about interpretability? So what kind of work are you doing there to be able to bring this across geographies? Right. So first, before, so when we started, the majority of our effort lied on finding out what others are doing. So not to come up with, let's go this way and let's go this way, but instead to focus on what ways are already uh, approached by others. And this led us to make a very conclusive overview of all different continental and national strategies, frameworks, guidelines, to truly understand what are the ones we need to respect on international level, which are like the driving force, and what are, what are the ones on national level that are already being done. So not only to look at international space, but also on national, because many redundancies may occur if we won't. So this helped us to identify the key members we should further invite in our committee to get the necessary feedback and integration on national level. So we have a joint front on national level as a first step. Because if one national body reaches out to international level, a certain opinion is formulated about the national body. Right. Now another entity reaches out and suddenly there's confusion. confusion. And then the international body says, well, seems like you, you are not really organized on national level, that's a problem. So getting the national level interoperable was challenging. It was already a challenge, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, and to see where our strengths, where, can, where, have we, where do we have complementary value. And then when we go to international stage, um, this is where the real fun happens. This is where we are right now, so I can only share from the experience we are able to gather so far. And that is that many things are happening and it's really great to have these organizations like International Standards Organization or IEEE that act like an umbrella and bring in the majority of people from all kinds of countries, from different industry, from government, to integrate the comments and interests as they see fit or as they are raised to, to better formulate it here. And I think the communication is key as always and finding the right people to push the standard we have to international stage. And being challenged, I think is good a lot where we are then of course asked, why should we integrate what you have done now? What further value does it provide to the general fit of the documents that are currently, currently curated? So keeping in mind the values and contributions we are doing nationally helps to understand how we can contribute internationally and then find the right partners to showcase the validation we've established 
where we looked in different industries and see where these industries are also most relevant in other countries. So if a financial driven Singapore goes to a financial driven Hong Kong, then there's a lot of synergies if we talk about finance first to see what are the interoperable elements we can work on here and then expand further. So we have a smaller item to understand the conversation, to understand the context of how we fit in and then expand it to the further industries we are engaged with. Yeah, and then I, I know you can't speak much about the committee itself, but it is multidisciplinary, right? You have different factors of the Singapore ecosystem represented in it, right? Definitely, yeah. So we have, uh, actually it's, it's public, so we will okay. publish it now. The, the members and all the entities are of course part of it. And it's great to see this overall support of the ecosystem and the real knowledge the, the people in Singapore bring in where we have governmental representatives who are highly skilled and highly knowledgeable in the field. Similarly, academic, uh, academic spheres where the state of the art is pushed and the drive for perfection is of course integrated. In. How can we best integrate the latest research? And then the, re then the rationality comes in from industry where they see, well, if we integrate now the latest state of the art, developers won't like it because it's very costly and we need to find the right balance here. And of course, right. we need to keep our performance up to drive our revenue. So let's find the right balance between safety, which is a governmental interest, and performance, more the industrial interest, and then get the academia to find the right contribution of further knowledge and research that can benefit the overall process. So it's a very nice, it's called triple helix structure that benefits this uh, development. And, and to be fair, that's, that's a great part of why we founded the Institute because that triple helix is critical, right? You gotta have a place where you can have academics, where you can have engineers, where you can have business, you know, entrepreneurs and policymakers have a concrete discussion of the how do we do this so that it has value rather than the what we should do, right? Um, that's that's really good. And for our listeners, where could they get a copy of the report? And, and I will put a, a link to it in our website as well, but it'll be good to hear from you. Where can they get more informed about the outcome of, 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 uh, of the work that was done? Mm. Yeah, so... On national level, what we are doing right now, this will, will be released through Enterprise Singapore, which is the national entity for all kinds of standards work. There's the Singapore Standards Council that oversees all developments. On international level, to see the more high-level trustworthy AI uh, scope, I would highly recommend to start with ISO. They have a committee on so JTC1, SC42, which looks at all kinds of artificial intelligence standard developments. And one centerpiece is trustworthy AI, which is a brilliant starting point to get a comprehensive overview of the field. And also, the AI Act of the European Commission gives the first in insight in how government, governmental structures could be set up, how entities could be set up that then be accredited to do some certification in the longer run, 
how sandboxes of AI testing can be used to do the certification in the first place. And of course, how all of that should be benchmarked so that SMEs have similar chances of being certified as large enterprises, with, which is always a challenge. Yeah, and that actually that was that was what I was going to step into. You know, I'm a practitioner of AI in a startup. I run the MLOps uh, side of things. I always will have a problem between performance and interpretability, right? So, for one side, if I'm applying deep learning and it's achieving great results, it's really hard for me to provide a transparent enough interpretation of what the model is doing. To, to explain to you why it's doing that. And any, any data scientist worth their, their skin knows very well just the pains of trying to even understand the calculus behind deep learning, right? So <laughs> let alone, how do you provide an interpretation that is humanly uh, digestible, right? Um, so in that sense, sometimes it feels as a practitioner of AI that you have to do compromises of performance in sake of things like trans transparency, interpretability. Um, and, and the ability as an SME to be able to, to still subscribe to a standard that, is, that you know it's going to do the right thing when you release it to the market, to your customers, while not stagnating the ability to, to get off the ground, right? It's, it's one of the biggest dilemmas and challenges we deal with. What, 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 are you, what, what do you see in that space? Tell me a little bit as to how, how is the work going to hopefully evolve so that we can find a balance there? Mm -hmm. Right. So, first of all, I think in the AI space, how SMEs right now benefit from libraries big companies have developed, looking at TensorFlow, looking at PyTorch, looking at Scalern, all these kinds of libraries which are used by yeah, thousands, if not millions of data scientists really help to produce high quality systems, which then are performant. And similarly, uh, there's a trend going on, on how testing frameworks, how quality assurance frameworks are now equally integrated into such libraries or visualizations of how the model behavior worked, understanding what kind of features caused the prediction. For that, many libraries are now published that help the common, common goal of bringing overall development further. And I think with the standards, it's like pointing to these libraries, pointing to these right directions of adopting these kinds of existing technologies to demonstrate what standards desire. And of course, it's overhead in a development yeah. It's time and its cost. So eventually it impacts the price, it impacts revenue, and that's a problem. So what we try to do first is to have a voluntary assessment and then a self-assessment, which is if you choose to develop an AI application in the um, yeah, safety critical space, for example, you have an obligation to be very sure that it works well. It's just the case because you chose to work in a safety critical sphere and we need to ensure safety here because in some aspects, humanity goes over profit, hopefully. Then knowing how we can now 
benefit this process in the best way is crucial. And starting with this voluntary and self-assessment approach helps the bigger ones to do the work, let's say, and get to know some first benchmarks where a public entity could measure how current systems benchmark between each other. This is especially true if a government wants to buy a certain AI solution, now it needs to compare vendors. So having these metrics we talked about earlier helps to understand that and helps to benchmark the quality. Thereby, one can see how much one needs to work to reach a certain level of quality and how much that level of quality ensures safety, ensures fairness, ensures transparency, etc. So through this way, we can gradually and incrementally, I think, increase the, the ability to contribute to these principles from a developing standpoint while having this close collaboration with industry to provide the tools to the general public to adhere to such principles afterward or in parallel, depending on the progress, of course. On the progress, yeah. And, and I think this is, for our listeners, this is an, uh, an emerging discipline that will become a specialization on its own, where MLOP risk and controls or governance um, becomes a separate discipline altogether, because even though it's part of the practitioner's discipline, how to build, test, and deploy, the reality is that controlling from a non-biased perspective. So it's not me who developed the model, who's going to look at the weaknesses of the model, but allowing, you know, for those of you in data science familiar with cross-validation, this is really the, the, the discipline of how do we figure out the best way to control models performance, measure it, and even for the purpose of procurement, like you said, but also for the purpose of, of assurances and risk management. So this discipline is going to be growing significantly. If you're a practitioner of AI out there, this is something that you need to think of it and probably think of it separately from your mainstream operations, meaning as a separate, you know, governable structure that, that can have no bias over the models, right? And to be fair, companies perhaps like yours will eventually start providing these services outside of the organization so that they could be certifiable as well, right? And I, I could see that happening in the industrial space for sure. You know, I don't want my own uh, AI team within power plant to tell me the, the prediction model for turbine failure is certified, right? I, I want to hear someone else tell me that it's actually certified as well, right? Very good. I, I, I think this is a very interesting topic and, and we, we have a lot to uncover from a perspective of academics, investors, regulators, and practitioners. But I'd like to hear what last parting thoughts you could have for our listeners around the topic of security and, 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 and standards as a whole, which is uh, not necessarily discussed very often and not many people can discuss it properly either, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. I think the first thing is to be a little more aware of the opportunities I think AI can do. Like many things are now being developed for governing and regulating, but I think we should also consider the accelerating aspect where we need to understand that we have a lot of hype and we need to not only hype it up, but also yeah, practitioner it nicely. And for that, 
communicating the right governance and enterprise processes and development criteria are crucial to get AI across the prototype stage to a real product or to a service enhancing component. And for that, knowing what kind of standards can help, what kind of responsible AI principles a business is affected by, can really help to leverage the component of trust and to use AI in a way where the end users trust the company as it can show, look how responsible I developed the system. And therefore, by facilitating trust, increasing the adoption, which therefore then also benefits the overall uh, business itself. And seeing standards as this kind of accelerating factor, I think is very helpful in the further development of this field. Yeah, I, I agree. In fact, if you're starting a new company, Mr. Entrepreneur or Venture Firm, you should consider the standards as a way to start it with less risk to accelerate your know-how and your lead time to value, I think. Yeah. Which to be fair, you know, having witnessed in the last four years, AI startups, the, the, the amount of changes and, and, and quality and practices has grown you know, significantly. Like what, what we were doing before in someone's GPU at some office and what we're doing now is, is, is bounds better, right? Yeah. Um, I like to finish the podcast normally with, with a quote from Orrance Mann, you know, be ashamed to die until you have a won some victory for humanity. And in, in that spirit, I, I like to ask you a little bit about your own intentions. Where is, where is your intention directed now, having gotten to where you are at the stage, doing that academic portion, mm -hmm. you know, proving that you can complete a PhD, and, and, and then after mm -hmm. going into a, an area that is really on, on, unexplored to a degree. Yeah. What what comes after for you? What 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 do you what is your win to humanity going to be? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the safe acceleration would be safe acceleration. I like it. <laughs> acceleration, right? Where exactly what I what I was referring to in the in the in the previous question, where we are at this prototype stage in many aspects, and if we can accelerate it by providing the guidelines on how to grow the enterprise and have the standards in place to scale the AI systems in the business, I think this is a great idea or this is a great path to work on because regulation is coming. When we see European Commission, it's, it's pushing this topic forward and similar as US and Canada and Asia. Yeah. And I think the crucial aspect is that regulation should it should like not damper innovation too much. And I think it has many acceleration qualities. So if I make an example here, when we look at advertising, now it's less hard to jump into the space because there's, it's not much regulated. You can quickly get your recommendation system running but soon it will be harder because more regulation is there. But on the other hand, when we look at safety critical applications in healthcare, now it's really, really hard to build an AI system that gets FDA approval. But as we move forward with regulation, soon it will be less hard. 
So there, there is a, like a bi-sided connection here between regulation and acceleration. And therefore, I think the open participation and sharing of the interests of developers, of governments and industry is very important. And I think for regulators to really focus on collaboration and to balance safety and performance a bit. So we have incentivized structures. And maybe concluding with being in Singapore, I think it's really an ideal testbed to explore, to figure out how this right balance between safety and performance could do. And integrating it internationally in this context, I think is something where I would like to impact moving forward. That's excellent. And look at the two second year sentiments. I, I encourage always my colleagues to say, look, if we are excellent at practitioning uh, and, and look for better ways to do this, we leave the politics out of the regulation as much as possible because we can tell them what happens when you make political decisions with very important practices, right? But if we are not advancing the practice ourselves, then the politics will take over. Mm-hmm. Then decisions will be made without knowing how things will actually be. Perfect. This, this has been a great conversation, David. I appreciate your time. I hope that uh, we can hear you once again in the, in the network, in, in our institute as well. And look forward to, to featuring your work in our website and, and in future conversations. Yeah, thank you for thank your you time. Thank you very much for having me.